It's Tuesday, July 13th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Dave. And this is Pete, and we're on the road for Radio Free Oz on Bob, the 57-foot yacht with its captain, BP CEO, Horny Wayward, uh, Tony Hayward at the helm. Oh, welcome aboard, boys. And with him is Mississippi Governor Haley Barber. What a beautiful day for sailing, the sea like moose. Uh, where are you uh, headed there uh, now, Tony? Well, I'm sailing around the world to offer my glad hand to all the sheiks and sheiks and Russians and Greeks who've partnered with BP. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Watch it, it's those damn birds again. Albatrosses keep falling out of the oil rain and landing around my neck. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to sail out of here away from all the, the dead birds and the crowds of people suffering from unemployment. It's a, it's a disease, isn't it? More like an epidemic. Uh, we don't seem to be making much headway, Tony. Well, I could usually get through the gulf in a day, but not in these heavy seas. Oh, that six-foot-thick oil scum is... It's bloody hard to cut through. That's no scum, Tony. What? What reminds me of the slick sheen from a crisscraft rafting by pulling a good-looking girl and a well-built guy. Hmm. I don't think the scum is your biggest problem, Tony. I think mm, that is... Oh. Mother of pearl! It's the whitening whale! The biggest super skimmer in the world! Look at those booms! Oh. They must be a thousand feet long and stuffed with salon poodle hair and gaga wig! Oh, it's headed right at us and it's pushing a vast slew of dispersion! It's going to sop us up! Just let Pete and me off right here at Gas War Island, okay? Uh, well, thanks, fellas. Good luck with the whitening whale. No worries, lads. I've never met an oil disaster as slick as me. This is Peter Bergman and David Osmond, completely at sea for Radio Free Oz, hoping that all's well with this oil well. Uh, where do we go to get a drink, I Pete? Don't know. Where's the helicopter bed? Ho, 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 Oz in your ears, Radio Free Oz, up on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Here's our co-host, David Oz. Hey, Pete, how long has that gusher down there in the Gulf been gushing now? Maybe 55, 60 days, something Maybe like that? Maybe even longer. Well, you know, the, the advent of Daily Oz, which was Earth Day, the 22nd, yeah. and the advent of the gush are pretty close. So we're coming fairly close on to three months soon. Yeah. Boy. Oh, my. That's a, that's a, that's a slick. That's that, more than a slick. Well, they stopped calling it a, a spill. They I'm did? What, what are they calling it now? A tragedy? A disaster. A, a tragedy, disaster. A whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah, a catastrophe. A catastrophe, yeah. The oil catastrophe. It's not just a spill. I mean, you just didn't spill your tea on the on on the reference frock. I mean, you catastrophize the poor guy. <laughs> hey, spilling your cup of tea on the pastor's uh, rug, you know, yeah. uh, is just, uh, it's sort of equivalent, right? Yeah. It kind of is just as bad to spill your whole oil well all over our Gulf. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Rude. It's and, rude. and people, it's, it's not that it's become old news. No, no. But it's becoming this sort of dark, deep, uh, noir background to everything. You might have a happy thought, then remember, oh my God, as I was having that happy thought, 1,300 gallons of crude spewed into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, think how you'd feel if you were down there drilling the relief well. I mean, right sort of at the head of it, you know. 
trying to go this way and that and following your azimuth and being poked and says, I'm going to find that. It's only it's, what, it's two feet wide. I'm going to find it down there 10 miles below the surface of the moon. We'll hey, get it. Hey, BP has their azimuth on the line. <laughs> CNN tells us that the experts expected home sales to drop once the home buyer tax credit lapsed at the end of April. But the depth of the decrease was shocking. According to the National Association of Realtors, pending home sales fell by a whopping 30% in May. Their index, which measures signed sales contracts, plunged to 77.6 from 110.9 in April. It's even off 15.9% from a year ago when the nation was barely emerging from the recession. Were we really emerging from the recession? I hadn't noticed. The pending home sales report is a disaster, says Mike Larson, a real estate analysis for Weiss Research. Sales fell off a cliff after the tax credit expired. Yeah, and remember, it was 41 cold-hearted senators just nixed an extension of that tax credit along with abandoning a million and a half unemployed. They left town for their 4th of July parties and left the unemployed to kind of figure it out on their own. Hard-hearted sons of bitches. It's the biggest monthly decline, this is housing contracts, ever. And the index is at its lowest level since NAR began tracking it in 2001. Lawrence Yun, NAR's chief economist, downplayed the damage a bit. He said, if jobs come back as expected, yeah, as expected, thanks there, Larry, the pace of home sales should pick up later this year, and such a sustainable level of activity, given very favorable afford affordable conditions, could happen. Hey, who's this guy's medical marijuana dealer? I'd like some of that rosy glasses weed for all those dark moods this structurally shattered economy has been inducing in me. Well, we're not creating jobs, continued Mike Larson. Remember, he's the housing analyst. The housing problems now are being driven by broad economic problems. The question is when or if the job market will ever bounce back. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Hey, oh, Mr. Bergman, Mr. Bergman, I, I just I don't have no time to, to spend here. Uh, Sheriff Axe Handle, for, in case your listeners don't know who I am. I gotta, they know who you are. I sure. got to rush down to the Clinton Ferry Terminal. A man, a man said he lost his thirty-eight caliber pistol uh, down there, and uh, so far they ain't found uh, the weapon anyplace in the terminal. And a man did have a license for that concealed weapon of his, so I got to go down there. But let me just tell you about a couple of curiosities we've had here. Oh, my goodness, a man in a boat out there on Deer Lake, this was last Saturday, uh, right? in the evening time he was yelling lots of obscenities and the caller said it had been going on for a couple of hours that would mean he started about 345 and it was then 5 for that's a long time to yell curses at anybody you I'll know tell what you it means that. the fish that? weren't biting fish weren't biting well i gotta go oh yes and the caller that was sunday a caller on nautilus road returned home to find the door unlocked and his tv on uh, that woman who called in thought someone was hiding in the house, but I went out there and I didn't find nothing there at all. I got to go take care of this guy at the t ferry terminal. Anybody who loses thirty-eight revolver, I don't care whether he's got a license or not. Naomi Klein writes from Ontario, Canada, in the Huffington Post. She says, "My city feels like a crime scene, and the criminals are all melting into the night, fleeing the scene." No, I'm not talking about the kids in black who smashed windows and burned cop cars. 
I'm talking about the heads of state who just smashed social safety nets and burned good jobs in the middle of a recession. Faced with the effects of a crisis created by the world's wealthiest and most privileged strata, they decided to stick the poorest and most vulnerable people in their countries with the bill. How else can we interpret the G20's final communique, which includes not even a measly tax on banks or financial transactions, yet instructs governments to slash their deficits in half by 2013? This is a huge and shocking cut, and we should be very clear who will pay the price. Students, who will see their public educations further deteriorate as their fees go up. Pensioners, who will lose hard-earned benefits. Public sector workers, whose jobs will be eliminated. And the The list goes on. These types of cuts have already begun in many G20 countries, including Canada, and they are about to get a lot worse. For instance, reducing the projected 2010 deficit in the U.S. by half in the absence of sizable tax increases would mean a whopping $780 billion cut. Of course, it's anathema to raise taxes in America. Even though Warren Buffett and Bill Gates stand up and said, tax me, baby, tax me. Well, This is happening for a simple reason. When the G20 met in London in 2009 at the height of the financial crisis, personally, I think we're still there, the leaders failed to band together to regulate the financial sector so that this type of crisis would never happen again. All we got was empty rhetoric and an agreement to put trillions of dollars in public monies on the table to shore up the banks around the world. Yeah, we can save the banks, just don't save the people. Meanwhile, The U.S. government did little to keep people in their homes and jobs, so in addition to hemorrhaging public money to save the banks, the tax base collapsed, creating an entirely predictable debt and deficit crisis. Yes, we are in a crisis. You can see it as an economic crisis, which it is, but it's basically a spiritual crisis. We are suffering from zero-sum thinking. Hey, I give some of mine to him. It's going to be less for me, not more for everybody, because if we pump prime the economy, we'll create capital, we'll create jobs. No, no, no. It's all about me and not about you. I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to start by going out to the Hamptons there, you know, upside uh, Long Island and barging in on some of them hedge fund parties and just literally robbing the money from those sons of guns who are busy copulating with anorexic models. No, it's time we take that money and put it in to the public coffer. It's time the common people became interested in the commonwealth. Utah loves guns. Hey, freedom-loving Second Amendment patriots, are you feeling both scared of what might happen and juiced up by visions of armed response? No problem. Utah has just what you need, a concealed weapons permit that lets you carry your cool handgun in all 35 states where sudden terror may be rampant. That's right. The spirit of self-defense shouldn't stop at a state's borders. Carry your passive action blaster wherever thugs, aliens, and terrorists might threaten your way of life. Be an armed defender almost everywhere. We're waiting to help you right here at Utah's Bureau of Criminal Investigation.gun. It's easier than you think.
I'm Skyping with Mike Backus down in Los Angeles. Uh, he is, um, amongst many other interesting things, which we can get into, Anon, on the board of directors of Cornerstone Research Collective, which is a truly state-of-the-art medical, medical marijuana uh, dispensary there in L.A. And we talked earlier about the medical marijuana initiative there in California. And, of course, it's also happening in Oregon and Washington and how that may bring marijuana to a lot of people if it passes. Maybe yes, maybe no. But you're doing something that's going to make it a lot safer if you do come to marijuana under these circumstances. And that's the signal work you're doing with the um, Los Angeles City Council about uh, purity levels. Tell us all about it, Mike. Well, I mean, w- what it is is like with any, with any uh, agricultural product, uh, uh, marijuana uh, uh, can be adulterated. And, yeah. uh, and just like there are pure food and drug acts in California and a lot of states, and of course the national... Uh, uh, purview that comes under the FDA. Um, what we're hoping to bring to California is a little bit more transparency and accountability as far as the purity of marijuana. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're testing it on a gas chromatography mass spectrometer system to uh, look for uh, any pesticide residues. Right. But also beyond that, we're actually uh, taking culture plates from the marijuana and incubating those and looking for traces of pathogenic molds. Um, actually, and what we're finding is, is that pathogenic molds are a lot more common than any pesticide residues. Most people know that they're, they're growing this marijuana for people, so they don't put poisons on them. But um, pathogenic molds are sneaky. They, uh, they can just uh, show up on uh, improperly cured uh, medical marijuana, and uh, they can pose a, a health threat to, uh, to patients who decide to use medical marijuana. So what we're doing is we're testing for those. And... Um, we think that it's just the same kind of oversight that you see, you know, when you go and get some organic produce from Whole Foods, that it's a, that it's a pure, uh, genuinely organic product. Well, what I like about it also, besides I think this is a, a fabulous approach, is that the fact that you're working with the city council means that they're actually – they're part of the process now. It's not a matter of whether it's legal or good. They're setting standards, and if you set standards, it becomes it becomes kind of an all right, regular, everyday thing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's just part of the normalization of, of marijuana's medicine. I mean, um, you know, for a long time, uh, uh, because it's a Schedule One substance, uh, the thought was, well, it has no medicinal value, even though that flew in the face of five thousand years of practical experience in virtually every culture in the world. Um, that had that grew marijuana used it as a medicine. Um, what we're finally seeing now is is the recognition on the part of uh, politicians that you know this is a medicine. It is being used medicinally by a lot of people, and it's it should be subject to the same kind of oversight. And that process uh, ends up normalizing it uh, within society. And I think that it's we've seen a lot of positive steps here in the last year or so. Well, that that's terrific, Mike, and I, and I really commend you on the work you're doing. We'll be back for more Light Up with Mike, but this this is it for today. Uh, thanks again, Mike, and we'll be talking with you soon, okay? Thanks a lot, Peter. I think the gray lady is just as upset about this as I am. When the Deepwater Horizon drilling platform set off the worst oil spill at sea in American history, it was flying the flag of the Marshall Islands. Registering there allowed the rig's owner to significantly reduce its American taxes. The owner, Transocean, moved its corporate headquarters from Houston to the Cayman Islands in 1999 and then to Switzerland in 2008, maneuvers that also helped it avoid taxes. Tell you what. 
You want a drill, baby, drill in the U.S.? Then you better be flying the stars and stripes instead of some micronation with a population smaller than Akron, Ohio. At the same time, BP was reaping sizable tax benefits from leasing the rig. According to a letter sent in June to the Senate Finance Committee, the company used a tax break for the oil industry to write off 70% of the rent of this Deepwater Horizon rig, a deduction of more than $225,000 a day since the lease began, and somehow I feel it's coming out of my pocket. With federal officials now considering a new tax on petroleum production to pay for the cleanup, the industry is fighting the measure, warning that it will lead to job losses and higher gasoline prices, as well as an increased dependence on foreign oil, yada da yada da, lie, lie, lie. But an examination of the American tax code indicates that oil production is among the most heavily subsidized businesses with tax breaks available at virtually every stage of the exploration and extraction process. According to the most recent study by the Congressional Budget Office released in 2005, capital investments like oil field leases and drilling equipment are taxed at an effective rate of, ready, 9%, significantly lower than the overall rate of 25% for businesses in general and lower than virtually any other industry. And for many small and mid-sized oil companies, the tax on capital investments is so low that it is more than eliminated by various credits. These companies' returns on those investments are often higher after taxes than before. I, I just don't get it. Well, I do get it. I mean, what, what, I grew up in a, in, in a country where there was all the gasoline you could possibly think about. After World War II, the, the major war I experienced was the gas war. 19 cents a gallon. Come on in, fill it up, pour it on the ground. It's that cheap. And, and the way we kept it cheap, of course was by tax breaks and subsidies. Over in Europe, where they don't get damn tax breaks, gas is $8 a gallon, and cars are about the size of a postage stamp. Present, present. God is absent because we are absent. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were present that would be such a presence. The Daily Beast tells us that Fareed Zakaria criticized the Afghanistan war in unusually harsh terms on his CNN program, saying that the whole enterprise in Afghanistan feels disproportionate, a very expensive solution to what is turning out to be a small but real problem. His comments followed CIA Director Leon Panetta's admission last week that the number of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan may be down to just 50 to 100 members or even fewer. So if al-Qaeda is down to 100 men there at the most, Zakaria asked, why are we fighting a major war? Zakaria noticed that the war is costing the U.S. a fortune in both blood and treasure. Last month alone, there were more than 100 NATO troops killed in Afghanistan. That's more than one allied death for every living al-Qaeda member in the country in just one month. He says the latest estimates are that the war in Afghanistan will cost more than $100 billion in 2010 alone. That's a billion dollars for every member of al-Qaeda thought to be living in Afghanistan in one year. 
To critics who suggest that we need to continue fighting the war against the Taliban because they are allied with al-Qaeda, Zakaria countered that this would be like fighting Italy in World War II after Hitler's regime had collapsed and Berlin was in flames just because Italy had been allied with Germany. That's a good one. Why are we investing so much time, energy, and effort when al-Qaeda is so weak, Zakaria concluded? Is there a more cost-effective way to keep al-Qaeda on the ropes than fight a major land and air war in Afghanistan? I hope someone in Washington is thinking about this and not simply saying we're going to stay the course because, well, we must stay the course. I'd like to mention one thing, Farid, it's not a war. It is an occupation. We are not fighting an army. We are fighting insurgents, whoever they are. You know, it's Taliban, it's Al-Qaeda. It's, we're, we're being shot at by our allies, so-called. The warlords are killing us if we won't pay Bakshish. No, it's not a war. It's an occupation, and it's an occupation that ain't working. Yeah, I think you can actually call it a drug war. Uh, according to CNN, I think it qualifies, right? Because a fully functional submarine built for the primary purpose of transporting massive amounts of cocaine has been seized by Ecuadorian authorities with the help of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agents. It's a full-on submarine. Boy, that's a lot of torpedoes full of torpedoes, oh, man. Oh, man. This is the first seizure of a clandestinely constructed, fully operational submarine built to facilitate transoceanic drug trafficking, the DEA administration said in a statement. Wait a minute. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, yeah, of course it is. Uh, the vessel utilized twin screws and was diesel electric power. The agency said it was about 98 feet long and nearly nine feet high. Yeah, I know that one. I used to be captain of that no, in but the this war is, type, you know? No, this is maybe, but this is yeah. built to that one because this yeah. is brand new. Right? Brand new. It has a, para, it has a periscope and it's air-conditioned. All right, this is the real thing. Now, Does it have women on board? You know, we couldn't have that in the old days, but now I understand you can have women no, on board. No, they gave them dust boot. You just uh, can't have it. So, no. Traffickers historically employed slow-moving fishing boats, uh, sailboats, pleasure craft, go fast, said Jay Bergman, Andean regional director for the agency. No, right. Uh -huh. No part of my family. No. The advent of the narco submarine presents new detection challenges for maritime interdiction forces. You can tell these DEA guys are excited. Oh, Chasing yeah. subs instead of rickety old fishing boats is real boy's adventure. Yeah, that's the stuff. Ping. Yeah, right. Ping. A ping. cocaine sub uh, for 4, 14, 16 off the bow. Do I have uh, uh, I want to fire. The submarine's nautical range, this is Bergman speaking again, what a guy, payload capacity, wait a minute, pale, are we talking torpedoes or, you know, or, yes. or, 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 or you know, uh, hot shots, um, uh, payload capacity and quantum leap in stealth have raised the stakes for the counter-drug forces and the national security community alike, said Bergman. Boy, he, he really puts a lot together in one mouth. There's a lot. There's yeah. A, now, yeah, okay. Now, the submarine was constructed in a remote jungle environment in an effort to elude law enforcement or military interdiction, the agency said. So there is a submarine factory somewhere in the jungle. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Argentina. I've been living there for 75 years. Uh, You've been I living in a submarine, yeah, it's a submarine. The one you came in, you never got out because no, they wouldn't give you a passport. They got a nice little place for me to dock. That's it. Go ahead. All right, Doc. And I, I don't like the kind of doctoring you used to do, but you're Doc. Now, <laughs> more cocaine in the news. 
why it's hard, uh, why it's hard nowadays, in fact, to find a rolled up newspaper that doesn't have something about cocaine in it, right? Okay. A replica. How about a rolled up 20? Oh, yeah, right. Remember when they found that almost all rolled up 20s had some cocaine residue on them? Yeah, when they went to pulp the old money, they just were as high as guys. A replica of a World Cup trophy seized by Colombian authorities at the Bogota airport was made of cocaine, police said. Gold paint in bad condition on the trophy surface aroused the suspicion of investigators who sent a sample of the trophy to a laboratory for forensic testing. Results revealed that the replica was made of 24 pounds of cocaine. Now, that's a trophy worth winning. Well, there's countries in the pits, and I really should admit that I feel it's time to do something about it. Our democracy is splintered, sold out to the highest bidder, and I only see a single way around it. Oh. Let's stop being so attendant and declare our independence and create a nation where we're in control. We can finally Climb up to the highlands and we'll paint a flag and hoist it from a pole. Well, it's sounding pretty sweet, but it's a little incomplete. There'd be nothing there to eat but weeds and ants. We could bring along some friends and they could do the odds and ends and start a farm so we could live off of the land. Oh. We need a place to stay so we could find a way to pay to hire an architect and builders to it. I suppose they need to buy some rudimentary supplies They could use my credit card and just deduct it Subway stops, 
doctors, cops, and donut shops. Water, gas, and sewer lines. Super highway traffic signs. Museums, parks, aquariums. Zoos and planetariums. I might need to think this through. Cause there's a lot of things to do. Just to get this little nation on the map And I'm not sure I would make it Yeah, this emperor is naked And I'm tired and I'm ready for a nap Well, maybe I should stay at home And fix the problems on this road And spread out to the neighborhoods Make a change and do some good We've only got so many years To make our mark and disappear And enjoy the parks, aquariums Zoos and planetariums I am on the phone with uh, Jenny Pell, who is an uh, expert in permaculture. She designs in the area, she consults, and she educates. Jenny, it's a pleasure to have you on Radio Free Oz again. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Thanks, Peter. Now, one of the things we talked about is that uh, that permaculture is available not only in the rural environment. It's obvious, you know, that growing there is, is pretty much a way of life. The exurban environment, the suburban environment, and even the urban environment. And I understand that you were working with the Seattle City Council on this very issue. Can you give us a little background on this and tell us what's going on? Yeah, Seattle just was awarded $21, $20 million from the federal government to become the first carbon-neutral city in the country. And we beat out a lot of other cities because folks believe that we can pioneer a lot of examples here. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to sit in on an urban agriculture um, group to advise city council on how to have carbon neutral food in the city of Seattle. And it's a really amazing task force. They have energy, transportation, waste streams, food, they have six different categories. And so they're looking at ways to what we call in permaculture stack functions. How can we have one thing, one element, serve a whole lot of different features in a system. Mm -hmm. So when you have uh, local organic food, you are also creating green jobs, you're also reducing your carbon footprint by not having to go to the grocery store or import it from far away. It turns out that actually eating organic, even if it comes from farther away, has a lower carbon footprint than eating local if they're not using organic practices. Really? Yeah, so we're looking at all this different data and information and trying to condense it down into actionable items for the city council so that they can facilitate through, let's say, mandates, incentives, or disincentives how groups can proceed down this road. Here's a great example that Seattle, all the parking strips right outside of your front of your house right. used to be you weren't allowed to grow very many things in there and that you can now grow anything you want as long as it's edible. And, and legal. they have new codes. And legal, legal, and they have a new code coming in Seattle that you can now sell produce that you grow on your lot from your house. Really? So yep, very progressive. That's yep. a very progressive step because people are always afraid of making public stuff you do private. I, you know, that's been a big yeah. bugaboo. Well, yep. and then they gave, let's see, for commercial buildings, they gave a 15-foot height extension on commercial buildings if you put an edible 
system with a, a, a greenhouse or a rooftop garden. Well, that means you're basically giving those people uh, the ability to build another floor of rental space in exchange for a, a permaculture addition. That's that's quite a trade-off. I mean, that, that would be to any developer. I think that would be attractive. So when, when did this start? Is this already underway in Seattle? I mean, are people already responding to it? Yeah, Seattle is really keen on growing food. So I think that in the, we have, we've had a food action policy group for some time. We have a good food network. Seattle, we have a lot of um, decentralized, very active groups doing everything from farming on bacon lots and farming in alleys to a huge pea patch system yeah. where it's kind of like allotment gardens. And then just in the neighborhoods, Department of Neighborhoods, and even the Seattle Park now is starting to embrace putting food growing capacity and education programs at the community centers. I love so it. I think that in a lot of ways, Seattleites are kind of, uh, you know, ahead of the game compared to other parts of the country, but we're modeling it for everybody else. And people can look to us as an example of how do you get from zero amount of food grown in the city to what a great goal of 10% of what we eat grown within the city limits of Seattle. That would be food everywhere. Oh, that would be fabulous. Now, being on the web, of course, we're reaching people all around the world. So what would you recommend that the, the average Oz listener, say myself, uh, could do to, to make a first step into uh, understanding and perhaps participating in permaculture? Permaculture is a thriving international movement. It's, it's active everywhere. So what I would just do is put into the Google search engine permaculture Ohio, mm-hmm. permaculture Kansas City, and just put, you know, put, see who your local group is yeah. and just contact them. People are very receptive. They're always looking for um, bringing new folks on board and helping people to get up to speed um, in whatever area their interest lies, whether it's passive solar, whether it's water systems, whether it's food growing, whether it's um, policy. You know, I find my personal interest these days are, are jumping into policy. We've made this very interesting leap from thriving grassroots and just jumped right into policy at this point. People are being elected on a sustainability mandate. Yes, yes. People are getting hired in corporations to have a sustainability coordinator's job, and I don't think they really know how to implement things. So having a systems thinker at the table, like us, is really a good idea. So how to get involved? Um, Find some local folks. um, Read a few books. You can get some really great permaculture books, Introduction to Permaculture, Gaia's Garden, um, there's, a, there's two or three different permaculture magazines, and there's several permaculture blogs online that are very international in nature. Yeah, that, that's great. Now, when we talk next, what I, and, and I know that this is available, you know, reading books is good, it's very important, but hearing someone talking about it live from experience, one of the things I want to investigate is, on your own, how can you help how can you sketch out a plan for your own space? The way that you go in and consult and say, okay, this can grow here, here's a trellis, so-and-so. We want to be able to help people, in a sense, find the resources to do it on their own if there's not a Jenny Pell, you know, available. Absolutely. I think that people really just need to start participating in the local economy and finding a way to make it really fun and really connected and really soulful. And once you have that heart connection to your local community and feel really empowered with what you can do right in your own space, people just love it. They take off with it, and then all of a sudden these new ideas are popping up all over the place that I can't even imagine. Well, this is wonderful, Jenny. I look forward to talking with you again. Thanks for being on Radio Free Oz. You're so welcome. 
What you're about to hear is audio from um, the session in the U.S. Senate just before everybody left for their July 4th uh, vacation. Uh, it's Gene Shaheen, the Democratic senator from New Hampshire, and subsequently then Robert Menendez, the Democratic senator from New Jersey. And the rest of it pretty much speaks for itself. Madam President, I ask unanimous consent that the Judiciary Committee be discharged of S-3462, a bill to provide subpoena power to the National Commission on the British Petroleum Oil Spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and that the Senate then proceed to its consideration. Is there objection? On behalf of other members of the Republican Conference, I object. Objection is heard. Madam President. Senator from New Hampshire. Madam President, I ask unanimous consent the Senate proceed to the immediate consideration of calendar number 442 H.R. 5481, a bill to give subpoena power to the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill and offshore drilling, that the bill be read a third time and passed, and the motion to consider be laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate. This is legislation that passed the House 420 to one. Is there objection? On behalf of other members of the Republican Conference, I object. The objection is heard. Uh, Madam President, the I... Senator from New Hampshire. I, I don't understand what is so objectionable. In the House, 169 Republicans voted in favor of giving the Presidential Commission subpoena power. They understand how important that is because this commission begins their investigation in the next few weeks. This should not be a partisan issue. I don't understand why my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are turning this into a partisan issue. I find it unbelievable that after everything the people of the Gulf region have endured and that this entire country has witnessed for over two months now that anyone is still standing with the oil company that caused this disaster instead of the victims who are suffering from it. I hope the American people understand that this is a clear contrast between who stands on your side and who stands on the side of special interests. How is it possible that members of this chamber find it difficult when the House of Representatives in a near unanimous vote could say that the subpoena power is necessary for the commission to be able to get to the bottom of what happened could pass unanimously there, say for one vote, and yet cannot even proceed here. Cannot even proceed here. This isn't rocket science. It's common sense to most Americans. We need to fully learn the lessons of this disaster with a thorough investigation, not protect oil companies, from having their negligence exposed. We need to get answers from BP and Transocean and Halliburton and everyone else, including the federal agencies. Not give apologies to them, as I have seen Republicans suggest that we should apologize to BP for making sure that the residents of the Gulf region are held whole. We need to know the truth, and the Commission needs the power to get the truth. So who are you protecting? And what are we hiding here? McNewspaper reports, Dave, that a Russian unmanned cargo spacecraft has finally successfully docked with the International Space Station after missing an earlier attempt. OK, 
Okay. Well, it's just one of those sleepy times, you know. Come on. We missed. It's a Russian a Russian thing, right? Yeah. The, the Progress cargo vessel, a resupply craft, was trying to dock with the space station when a technical problem occurred about 20 minutes before the docking time, okay? Oh, God, I got a technical problem over here. Yeah, What's but there's nobody amazing? No, there's I, nobody. There's no. nobody inside this craft. Oh, no. There's only people down at NASA control Whoa. with yeah. the Russian. The vessel flew about two miles past the space station, and the Russian mission commander, Alexander Svorstov, has told NASA Mission Control that the cargo vessel was seen in a state of uncontrollable spinning. <laughs> Whoa, Nelly, how would you like to be one of those crew oh. watching your resupply ship go by uncontrollably? You won't be able to pop the caps on that crate of eight ounce Coke Classics for fear of blowing up the ship. There's no doubt about it. Oh, boy. Well, now, the craft launched from the Bakanur Space Center in Kazakhstan, where they're having trouble on many levels, mm-hmm. right, said the state-run um, news agency from Russia. It planned to deliver fuel, oxygen, scientific equipment, uh, video, photo equipment, and classic Coke to the space station, <laughs> along with food, water, and personal items for crew members, including newly uh, stipulated wills. Progress uh, uh, resupply. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no, I, I wills? No, you know. threw that. The whales are all the same, spinning or not. I was going to throw in the porno pictures, but go ahead. No, they got spun out, man, by the time we got them. You couldn't recognize them, all bobbled up. Progress resupply vehicles typically deliver supplies to the space station and haul away trash, burning up on reentry. So I'm going to ask you now, Dave, maybe we can get rid of our trash that way also. Ship it to outer space and let it burn upon reentry, you know? Yeah, we send ours to Oregon. You might as well send it to the moon, you know? Some parts of Oregon resemble the moon. And and if we send it away and it comes back and just burns itself up, it's gone. It's an idea, not a very good one. Well, it might, you know, those garbage trucks are awfully heavy. I mean, just get one off. Get a, put yeah, a garbage I mean, truck on the top of one up. of them rockets. Well, yeah, you don't want to have to unload it, do you? No, you don't. And then, I mean, then you send it out. And then let it go. And by the time it reenters Earth, poof, gone. Well, it's all, everything inside is burned up. It lands there at uh, Sector 9, and everybody thinks it's an alien. Well, it's another Tuesday, Pete. And on Tuesdays, oh, I think except for one or two Tuesdays in the past. But on Tuesdays, we've been uh, playing a little piece of uh, radio theater, mostly undiscovered stuff that we've been playing here for you. And today, the Firesign Theater returns with The Pink Hotel Burns Down. Strange title. This was going to be our 1980 album. Yes, it was. This is going to be a big hit. Well, you're going to hear about Mm, ten minutes of it, seven minutes. It's going to be our big Warner Brothers debut. That's Remember, right. they had a committee. We had to do this for them. Yep. We literally had to audition in 1980 for Warner Brothers. Tells you something, and we lost by one vote. There you go. Well, we won by you won by one vote out there because I voted that we should hear this, and uh, it is the first piece ever done about a computer game. The date is 1980, and in this, uh, I play the part of Armistice Brooks, who wakes up inside of a computer game. Good morning, player number one. You wake up in the second-best room in the pink hotel. You have survived the effects of the banquet, but you cannot move your left hand. There is a door on the east wall opposite your bed. Next to it is a picture of a naked devil in a mirror. He looks terrible. Who is that? It's you. It's me. I look terrible. Where are my jeans? In your body. No, I mean my trousers. Your trousers are on the chair against the south wall. I get up. I go to the chair. I'll put on my pants and get out of here. Ow! Ow! What happened? You knocked over the champagne bottle. I'll pick up the bottle. 
I pick up the bottle. Why, why can't I pick up the bottle? You cannot move your left hand. I use my right hand. Is there anything left? There is one drink left. Good. Save it. Save it. Okay, now give me my trousers. Ah, help! 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 There's a one-eyed snake in your trousers. I hate snakes. Give him the champagne. The snake is now drunk. Ah, good. I'll hold on to it. Save it. What's that? A muffled voice calling for help. I'm coming! I put on my pants. Save. I go to the door. Open door. With my right hand, and I step out. Army! Hey, Army buddy! Hey, hey, don't close the door! Oh, no! We're trapped out here, and the hotel's on fire! Where's the rain queen? Well, I traded her to the dust mask. For what, Flipper? For this fine hump on my back. Meet oh, Earl the halfling. Hiya, blood bag. So, what are we going to do with a halfling in the Holocaust? Watch it. I've got a really low level of predictability. Ow! Ow! <laughs> Kick me. I'll kill it. No, no, no. no. He carries a lunchworm with an important message for you. <laughs> lunchworm, give message. Oh, no. You have to give me something. <laughs> okay. What have I got? Inventory. Player one inventory. Half a map of parade route. Glass key. Ghetto blaster. Checkered trousers. Schnockered snake. Souvenir snowball with skyline of bonus city. I like that. I like all this stuff. Give him the key. I need all this stuff. Give me the key. key. <laughs> okay, lose key. Here, boss. Thanks, Earl. <laughs> Lunchworm, give message. You know, we really must have lunch sometime. That's no message. <laughs> How about the sky bridge is falling? Holy <laughs> Looks like game over. Stand back, not while I got a snake in my pants. I'm just going to whip it out. Tie a knot into it and lasso that flagpole. Go for it. Okay, hop on, number two. No thanks, one. I've got a key. Save me. Save me. Save me. Ouch. Save me. Save me. Ow. Get off my back. One and a half legs. Two legs. A snake breaks. Suck air, white devil. We halflings fly. <laughs> the hotel burns down. Game over. You have only 450 points. You are not a top 10 scorer. Your room has been cleared and is now available. Do you wish to register at the Pink Hotel? Ah, you're a loser, Do you wish Sonny. To register First rule in the Pink, the Pink Hotel, Hotel game is never talk to a dang lunchworm. It takes me a little time to figure things out. A little time? I've played it a thousand times. Listen, you break the mirror with the champagne bottle, you yell, Yahoo! And you go straight to the devil's bridal suite. Get it? Simple as that. Next stop is Boner City. Look, I'm doing all right, okay? Existence for me is just one controlled fall after another. Oh, that's cute. You must be dumb. 450 points and you're a philosopher? Did you ever think about death? Look, old-timer, just back off me, all right? Wait a minute. Don't, don't leave me. Listen, buy me a beer. I, I, I can get rid of that halfling for you and take you right to the rain queen. I told you I played it my way. Buy me a beer. If I don't drink beer, Irregular, achieve real high powers of irritability. Okay, all right. Okay, excuse me. All right. Don't get smart with who? My day is started as a kid. So did I. Me too. I was a half-child model. So was I. Me too. Who you know those families to? that have two and a half kids? That was me. That was me. Are you that talking to me. yourself? But then they changed the rules on us. Uh, Sylvia, punch us up another gin and sand from the well, would you? Make that three. Hey, you're I'll making me too. real irritable. Why don't you shut up over there? Hey, will you stop yelling Here's at me? Here's your beer. Thanks. Who is he talking about? I don't know what's that. wrong with this guy. I'm suffering from multiple identity. Let's have a little pity here. No pity for me. I can handle it. Me too. Okay, boys. Listen. 
Did you hear the one hey, about the two hey, little Mexicans? Sonny, don't, no, 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 don't drop your money into the dust they master. They come across a bunch of that Sunday Slavics, it's young money, just patio poolers standing trip. around Let's watching have another a couple beer. of dogs. I told you I like to play by myself, okay? Sons of the wind, children of the sand, old dust master's back and I'm dry as the crankcase on a full sprung Chevy. Low water beer all around. Drinks on the caravan to Bonus City. Don't trust me. Yes, yes, yes. We're up and running. I'll get you through. I've got the wind map. Better than government goof sheets. What do you say? Ah, who needs you, old dustmaster? They say the winds are going to be dying down. Yeah, but my rates go down when the winds die down. Come on, boys. Out of my way, wind wimp. Say, hey, how about you, player? You coming along? Uh, sorry, no. I'm driving alone. Alone? You ever see what a wind like a wasting king can do to a car? Are the seven screaming sisters? Why, they eat it right down to the chrome on the tailpipe. You can see through everything but your windshield. I heard I could uh, get a troll to guide me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guide you to the chop shop low points. Make car suey out of your caddy. How about it, 450? Clock's running. No, I'll uh, ride with the risk. Valiant's right out front. The horse with the plates that say game OVR? You got it. No, I ain't got it. They got it. <laughs> Who got it? A couple of trolls from Edible Rex Garage. <laughs> You're doomed, sucker. I told you not to play this game alone. The trolls have your car. You have lost 250 points. You are not a top 10 scorer. Wish to sign on for the Dustmaster Caravan? No way. Do you wish to sign on for the Dustmaster Caravan? Do you wish to sign on for the Dustmaster Caravan? Do you wish to sign on for the Dustmaster Caravan? CNN tells us that a record 1.21 million people want to work but said they aren't looking because of the weak labor market. This is according to federal statistics that were just recently released. The June figure is up from 793,000 a year ago. Three-quarter of a million people and more are not looking for work more this year than last year because things are so bleak. The statistic is yet another sign of just how bleak the uh, employment picture is. And these folks, known as discouraged workers, aren't even counted in the unemployment rate because they haven't looked for work in the past four weeks. Now we're beginning to attack the issue of what is the real unemployment rate. Oh, it's hovering at 9.8%. Awful by itself. But the real rate, 15, 16, 18, we're going to have to come to terms with this. Unlike those who have given up completely, discouraged workers have hunted for a job during the past year. Still, there's not much hope out there for this segment of the unemployed. There are five workers for every available opening. Things are very, very weak, and they are not expected to strengthen anytime soon. It's going to be a long slog, said Heidi Scherholz, a labor economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Scherholz expects the unemployment rate, now at 9.5%, to hover around 10% through the next year. And she's fully aware that this is only the official rate, and it's probably off by a full third or maybe a half. 
Those who have been out of work for a long time will find it more difficult to land a new job, particularly if they are in sectors that will likely remain depressed, such as manufacturing and construction. They don't have the skills to switch industries. Manufacturing? Remaining depressed? That's a huge industry, or at least it used to be. The labor force in general has shrunk over the past two months, contracting by 974,000 people as they lost confidence in their employment prospects. That reverses part of the gain of 1.7 million workers in the first four months of 2010 when a wave of optimism flowed through the nation. Well, that wave has subsided. More people may have stopped looking for work because their jobless benefits are expiring, wrote Deutsche Bank economists Joseph Lavornia and Carl Ricodana in a note. To collect unemployment benefits, people must be actively seeking work. Hmm. From the Deutsche Bank, Mr. Lavornia and Ricodana. Let us not forget that the Deutsche Bank holds a multi-billion dollar portfolio of U.S. mortgages, including tens of thousands that have been foreclosed because of the bubble they helped engineer, the toxic bubble they helped engineer. So instead of noting the depth of our problems, why don't they cough up some of their ill-gotten gains from their American real estate scam, give it directly uh, to the unemployed, if these ivory tower denizens know where to find them. As the labor force contracts, the unemployment rate falls. This is one reason why it dropped in June from 9.7% to 9.5%. In other words, there aren't fewer people unemployed. It's just that the whole labor force itself contracts. The decline in the unemployment rate is not a reflection of strength, but rather a sign of discouragement among the ranks of the unemployed, the economist said. My, oh my, that's the wrong algebra, in my opinion. You know, when you look at the world with all of its colors, you have to realize that the color you're seeing is the only color that that object does not, um, you know, absorb. So if you see a green tree, really, it's red because it's keeping everything but the red. The reason I go into this long discourse is that this show, really, although it's the ending, it reflects everything that has gone before it. That's kind of a Chinese thought, wow, isn't it? that is sort of a That's Chinese That's kind of tangy. Like, That's a little on. tangy. Well, Tangalizes. I've got, a, I've got a Lee Po here for you. Go Lee. And this is called Taking Leave of a Friend. Um, they loved to memorialize those moments in their lives when after whining and dining and carrying on with a good buddy, they got to say goodbye. Yeah, it's a big deal there. They, and they made big out of simple things. We could learn from that. Here at the city wall, green mountains to the north, White water winding east, we part. One tumbleweed, 10,000 miles to go. High clouds, wandering thoughts, sunset, old friendship. You wave, moving off, your horse whinnies twice. And so, Radio Free Oz closes for another day only to reopen on the next. Brought to you by the Oz Team. Peter Bergman, your host. Say moi. And say Louis. Who's that? David Osmond, the co-host. Say Louis. Louis. I'm not Louis. You're not Louis. John Cummings finds the stats wherever they may be hidden. Phil Fountain's head of the Oz Design Group makes it all pretty. Tom Goodwillow makes the website keep on keeping. Chaz Glass is Mr. Finance. Dave Maloney is Mr. Sound Recorder. 
Bill McIntyre, he is the producer. Scott Wilde, he is the man that makes the social media keep up with Oz and vice versa. Catch you on the other side.